We're in Ecclesiastes today. We're actually closing out that series. Uh, We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Uh, It's a bittersweet day for me. Bittersweet in the sense that um, I've really appreciated Ecclesiastes. I hope you have as well. Um, And I'm, I'm not excited to be finished with it, but it has been a heavy book. I mean, there's a lot of difficult topics that have been dealt with in it. A lot of heavy words shared. Uh, but we're going to get we're going to get a glimpse of why that is today. Um, Solomon wasn't pulling any punches; he was being very honest and very real about this life that we live here under the sun, as we wait for our Savior to come and get us. And it's words that we need to hear and need to listen to. So I'm very grateful for our time. I hope it served you from some of the feedback I've received. I believe that probably has been the case. But today, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9 through 14 will help us, or I believe it will help us as we close out this study. Next week, we're going to begin in James, and and so that's something for you to look forward to. Let me read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll study. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. It's striking that that word's there, right? Like if you've been walking through this study, words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collection of sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the work that it does in our lives. Grateful for the power that it brings to us. Grateful for the change it it brings out in us. Grateful for the hope we have because of it. Grateful for how we can look forward knowing the promises you've made through it, confident in seeing your work in the past that enables us to look forward to the future. I pray today, Father, that in, the, in, in these final verses that your spirit would lead us more deeply into truth, that we'd be able to displace the lies that we believe so that we could more firmly more completely be rooted in your truth. I'm just going to ask, Father, that, that in this time, that my ineptness, that my weaknesses, that my false understandings would be, would be forgotten, but that the truth of your word would be planted deeply in each of our hearts, that we might know you better, that we might revere you more, that we might follow you more fully. Jesus, I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is the last book. And, and, and as we're coming to the end of this, and I'm reading this passage this week, and, and, and the author is speaking so much about words, I, I couldn't help but think about just how powerful words really can be. I don't know if you remember any of the school like the playground insults that you would throw around at one another when you were in school. But, but for us, and for me anyway, and I don't know if this, I grew up in Louisiana, so I don't know if this is 
all across the nation or if this is just where we were. Uh, and it's been a lot of years ago. So, I mean, I, it's been a long time since I've been in grade school on the playground slinging insults. But, but the reality was there was one insult like you would build to this one. And at the end, short of being short of cussing each other out, the, the, the harshest, most serious insult you could give was your mama. Right. I'm not talking about your mama jokes. I'm talking about this is the insult of insults, your mama. And when somebody said that, it was like, it's on. I'm your what? what? And his fists are going to be thrown. There's going to be a fight. It happened in my neighborhood. It happened in my, on my playground. I'd love to say that I was a great kid and I was innocent and never got in any trouble. But that's just not true. Because I wasn't going to let anybody say your mama to me and get away with it. Because to me, that was, I mean, you could have said a lot of things. It always struck me because my mom would hear about this. I'd get in trouble. She'd find out I got in a fight, whatever. Um, she'd be like, why do you care so much about that? It doesn't matter to me. Like, what does your mama mean? It doesn't mean anything. I mean, what, why does it matter? And she'd teach me this premise. And, and you, you've heard it. This won't be the first time you've heard it. Maybe you're already anticipating what I'm going to say. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And she'd tell us that. It's just words. What does it matter? But you know, intrinsically, and I, I know the intention of that saying. I know the purpose of that saying that it's just words. But for some reason in those words was heavy Wait, maybe not as an adult, maybe not standing here as a 46-year-old man. But as a kid on the playground, man, that was it. It was serious. See, words, they can hurt. They do carry power. I mean, you hear it. I think we've taken it to an extreme today. We live in this very PC culture, this very, uh, you've got to have a safe space where people can't say, say difficult things. But intrinsically, it's because we know that even though they're not sticks and stones, they still carry a weight. They still have an influence. Whether or not the words we hear, read, study, whether they're true or not, they have an influence on us. Harvard Business Review, as I I started thinking about this, I thought, you know, I've heard somewhere there's there's supposed to be this positive comment, compliment kind of ratio to... To negative, and so I went looking at, and and I thought this was going to be all anecdotal, right? I thought I didn't think there was going to be any kind of scientific studies. Harvard Business Review, though, proved me wrong, and they they reported on a study that was done on um, data collected from 360 reviews. So, like you're 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 getting a review from bosses, from employees. You got all these people speaking into how you do, um, and and the data that they that they combined from that, and then looked at how companies perform and how people perform. Thank you very much. Um, as they as they looked at all that data, this study demonstrated that that the best performing employees receive six positive critiques or six positive comments to one one negative. So so six to one. And 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 then there was another study that I came across that said that that the minimum that it should be is two positive comments for for one critical one. And then more anecdotally, I did find anecdotally that somewhere in health classes, and I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly where it is. I could go look it up. I've got the link. If you want it, you're welcome to go read it. But, but, but in health classes, this person was demonstrating that, 
that 60 compliments to every one insult, that's the ratio you need. What I'm telling you this for is not because those statistics are, are proven anything except this. Words matter. They carry weight. They're important to us. Even though they're immaterial, even though they're intangible, they can hit us hard and knock us down or they can build us up. Words matter. David Gibson in the book, Living Life Backwards, one of the books that I was reading through as I was working through Ecclesiastes, it's a book I would commend to you. Uh, He has an especially important perspective, I think, that he draws out. Um, It's looking at Ecclesiastes as preparing us for death in life. And so that is really important. Uh, but, but he says, he, he highlights the importance of words in this way by highlighting or, or, or focusing in on the point of a, a wedding where, where the bride and groom say, I do. And this is what he writes. And the words aren't on the screen. Just listen. Words of promise spoken in a wedding ceremony are not describing marriage or commenting on it. They are creating it. You think about that. Words matter. So something exists after their words have been spoken that did not exist beforehand. Think about this. Words matter. It was words in which the, the whole, all of creation was created. God said, let there be light. Light didn't just come up on its own. Light didn't come because he waved his hands around. He spoke, let there be light and light shone. And all of the creation was, was created in that way by his word. It was words, the deceptive words of the serpent in the garden that tempted Eve to eat the fruit. Had the serpent never entered in and had the serpent never spoken his lies, Eve would have had no reason to believe that that fruit was going to be good. She would have continued to trust God. Words matter. They can be creative, but they can also be destructive. Words matter. It only seems right then to me as I thought about this. It only seems right then that words would be a part of teaching us the futility of this life under the sun. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That is the message of Ecclesiastes It only seems right that words would teach us how futile this life under the sun was and then prepare us to look to life beyond it. Beware of words that add to the futility of life under the sun because they distract from the words of truth that teach us to fear and obey God. Beware of these words. Words matter. It's not not just some accident that they're spoken. It's not just some small thing that we hear them. Words matter. It seems to be the main thrust of this final passage of Ecclesiastes to ensure that we're making ourselves available to hear the right words. Now, you may have noticed the the voice change or the perspective change all the way through this book, uh, beginning in verse 14 of chapter one, Solomon has kind of been speaking as one who teaches. Now in verse uh, chapter 12, verse 9, that, that changes and someone begins to speak about the preacher. A lot of people think, well, that's, you know, that's Solomon just speaking in third person. Like I, I could stand here and talk to you about Seth is, 
Seth is not sick. You don't need to worry that you're going to get something from me. Seth just has a sore throat. I talk too much on Thursday, and I've not got my voice back from it. Now, some of you are like, well, who's Seth? Because you haven't met me yet. I'm Seth. I'm talking about myself, right? So, so the reality is, is that, that we can talk that way, we, and people do it. It's weird, and we make fun of it, and, and we can poke fun of it. So it could be what he's doing. Some people think that a, a, a narrator has come in and begun to summarize for us all that Solomon is getting at teaching. We may never know. And when we get to heaven, you're welcome to talk to Solomon about it. You're welcome to talk to, to Jesus about, oh, who in the world did this and, and what was the purpose of it? We may never know who wrote these words, actually, but, but we can be sure. We can take confidence in the one who inspired them to be written. You see, here's the reality. And I'll, let me just show this to you before we get into it. So in verse, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 11, it, look at your Bibles in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and nails firmly fixed or collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, a lot of people would say, oh, well, that must be still talking about Solomon. This is one person that's written this book. That's who it's got to be. But the reality is, is when we look at this and we see this and we see, okay, well, but he's being referred to as the preacher. Why is he now going to change perspective and start calling him a shepherd, we can see that someone else is in mind. This is a picture. This is a reference to the God of Israel. He is the one from whom all words of wisdom come from. They may come by human hand. A human hand may write them down. It might record them for people to read, but they are inspired by one God who shepherds his people, who feeds, leads, and protects his people. And if you think about how that falls in the context, he's doing it with words. It's not green grass. It's powerful words. It's not just still waters. It's powerful words. He is using words. to They, they matter. It's important that we hear the right Words And it's important that we beware of the wrong words. See, these, these words are given to us to direct us for, for one purpose. To, to see the whole duty that's before us. To fear God and to obey God. To prepare us to, to know him and be judged by him. So whether it's Solomon or an editor writing, writing these words, that, that at this point is immaterial. Because it's God giving them to us to hear them, that they might challenge us, that they might direct us. Let me just point out this. He's, he says that it's like the, the words are, are like goads. It's a sharp point on the end of a shepherd's staff. The shepherds would use it as, a, as, as sheep or as livestock are moving around. They would use the goad to poke the animal. It would hurt, but it would direct them the, the way they needed to go. It's like nails. And, and, and it's seeming, it's, uh, nails, what, why, what do they have to do with anything about shepherds? And They don't. Nails fix things firmly in place. They stick them in a place where they do not Move the goad directs the the nail fix one fixes one firmly in place. It gives you stability, gives you solid standing. The beauty of this is that they're both 
things that pierce. If they hit your skin, they're going to hurt. These are the words of the wise. They're like goads and they're like nails, but they're used for a glorious purpose. Words matter. So beware of words that add futility, uh, add to the futility of life under the sun because they distract from the words of truth that teach us to fear and obey. And just consider the words we've heard in Ecclesiastes as we've read and studied. There's some heavy, heavy things that we've dealt with. There's difficult things. Things that have been said that are hard for us to consider, that we don't like to stop and think about. No matter how hard we try, we all die. Wisdom, wealth, pleasure, work. You can't buy your way out. You can't work your way out. You can't earn or be smart enough to, to, to find your way out. You can't have a big enough party here on earth to diminish the fact that one day, looming in front of you, is death. Solomon's words. Everything you do, everything you do in and of your own power leads to futility. It will never enable you to overcome death. Is that not heavy? Yes, it's heavy. How about just go to the, go to the passage in which the book opens. The teaching begins in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Vanity of vanities. <clears throat> Futility of futilities. Everything, says the preacher, is futility. And it's not just futility among futilities. It's not just vanity among vanities. It's the highest. It's like when we say Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we say he's King over all Kings. When we say he's Lord of Lords, we're saying he's Lord over all Lords. Solomon is saying that this life under the sun is the vanity higher than all other vanities. It's the futility above all other futilities. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These are heavy words. But here this narrator or Solomon himself steps back and says, there is a reason I have done this. I'm not depressed. I'm not in midlife crisis. I'm not pessimistic. I am looking at this life in the real light of day. I am taking an honest and wise observation of the things that exist under the sun in this life subjected to the curse of sin. And I am being honest about it. There's a whole world around us who would love for him to not be so honest. In fact, there's a lot of us, even Christians, who don't read this book because it's so difficult to deal with. But he put these words together not just to tell us about how bad life is under the sun. He didn't put these words just to, to, together just to, to make us suffer. He put these words together so that in hearing them and applying the wisdom within them, they would prepare us for the very thing we were created. To know God fear him and to obey him. 
Brothers and sisters, wisdom's words of truth may hurt to hear, but they are a delight to those who listen. These words, they may hurt to hear. They may be difficult for us to hear, but they are a delight to those who listen. They're a delight to those who hear them and do something with them. If you come in on a Sunday and you hear a a difficult word being preached and you walk away and you ignore it, don't do anything with it. It's very easy to say, oh man, that guy's just a jerk. But if you listen, if you listen, if you begin to take it in and apply it and think through it and work on it and look at the scripture where it comes from, it begins to be a delight, not because it's easy, not because that's the thing that you just want to hear. That's somewhat masochistic if you think about it. I want to go listen to somebody just beat me up a little bit. It's a delight because of what happens. You think of think about this. So, so Simon Cowell, uh, back when um, was a American Idol, when he when he steps out on on the on the uh, judges podium, he he becomes in some sick and twisted way. He becomes everybody's favorite judge because he's so hard on people. He tells them truth. He tells them you stink. You shouldn't be singing, and it, and it gets ratings. And then there's people that begin to appreciate it, not because his words were easy to hear, but because his words told them what they needed to hear. You see, these words are a delight, not because they're easy, not because we like to just step in and be beat up. We like to become what they're making us. This is the psalmist point when he writes in Psalms chapter one or Psalm chapter one, verse one and two, blessed, listen, blessed, that means fortunate, happy, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight is in the word of God, the, the expression of God's holiness and his righteousness. The expression of how we interact with and and respond to a holy, perfect, powerful God. His delight is in that. Because in it, he finds blessing. There's a lot of ways the world will tell you to go find your blessing. You just need a new job with a bigger paycheck. You, you, you you, You just need the right amount of money in the bank, the right size of your house, the right the right number of kids or maybe no kids. The world's going to tell you a lot of ways about how to find blessing. And it, 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 it can prepare you for some things in this life under the sun. But it'll never prepare you for the greatest blessing to stand in the presence of your creator and hear well done, good and faithful servant. You see, everything that this world would offer you in advice to find your blessing is vanity, futility. And if we're not told truth, we'll continue to believe lies. And one day, we'll die. You see, these words may hurt, but wisdom's words of truth are delight to those who listen. Wisdom's words of truth may hurt to hear, 
but they keep us going the right way. I've already pointed out this goad that, this, that, the, that the author here is talking about, that this paragraph is highlighting. That goad was at the end of a shepherd's staff. Shepherds cared deeply for their sheep. They would give their lives up for them in many, in many cases. They would seek them out. They'd go and find them in dangerous situations. They would protect them against wolves, against being eaten. Their job was to lead, feed, protect. They would do that. But the other job was if they're getting out of line to poke them back into line. Well, that, that would hurt. It would, it would pierce the skin. These sharp points, sometimes nails driven through the end of the, end of the staff or a, a steel stake at the end to, to poke and prod. That's exactly what God's word was intended to do. Did you know that? Let me just read you a passage. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's why we're not worried about who actually penned the last part of this paragraph because it's breathed out. It's inspired by God. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. That sounds pretty good. I like teaching. I, I want to I learn what I don't know. For reproof. That's a nice way of saying, showing you you're wrong. How, how many of you like to be wrong? Do you like to be wrong? Like, Do you like someone to come up to tell you you're wrong? Do you realize that the whole of the Christian life is repentance and you realize that repentance is admitting you've been wrong? You get that? We're wrong. We believed lies and so we're wrong. Eating the fruit of the tree was not good. It was destructive. Following the world's claims to blessing is not good. It's destructive. It'll kill you. The scripture breathed out by God will instruct us. It'll show us the truth. It'll show us where we're wrong for correction so that we can go the right way. You see, it's a twofold thing. It shows me how I've been going the wrong direction. It goads me like the shepherd's staff to point me back to the correct Way It points me in the right direction. It teaches me what's wrong and it teaches me what's right so that I can be trained in righteousness so that I quit going the wrong way all the time. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I didn't share this with you, but immediately following this passage, because here's the thing. I think we all want to be complete, equipped for every good work. I don't think there's a person in here that claims faith in Christ that doesn't want to be equipped for every good work. I think we all want that. It's difficult to get there. It's a hard road to be told you're wrong and here's what's right. This is not my opinion. This is not the opinion of other people. This is the word of God that corrects us and shows us where we're wrong so that we can be trained in righteousness. But immediately following that, Paul then gives Timothy a charge, a strong charge to preach the word in season and out of season, with complete patience. Preach the word. Not, not health and wealth, not, not, not feel-good sermons, he says, because there's coming a time where people will, will find someone to tickle their ears with their words. Brothers and sisters, we aren't here to be tickled. We're here to be poked and prodded so that we can be trained in righteousness and made ready for every good Work. 
God's word is the only thing that does that. You don't need a, you don't need a John Piper or a Matt Chandler or some famous, I don't know who your famous preacher is that you like to listen to. You need God's word. Now, he may use his preacher to bring you his word. I don't want to diminish that. I mean, that's what I do, right? I've got a role. But if it's not preach God's word, you need to tell me to sit down and shut up because those words are dangerous. Those are words you should beware of because they only add to futility and cloud the truth that you need to hear. Parents, this is exactly what you do with your children, right? I don't know anybody in this room that's a parent that lets their children just go do whatever they want to do. But we're inconsistent, aren't we? Sometimes we're tired. I just don't feel, I just don't feel like doing that right now. Or we're outnumbered. There's so many. It's just me. There's all kinds of ways that we know, though. That's, our, that's one of our roles. Aren't you thankful that your Father in heaven loved you enough to make sure his word was recorded so that it puts you on the right path so that you could walk the right way? Yeah, it hurts at times, but it keeps us going the right way. Uh, the words, wisdom's words may hurt to hear, but they plant us firmly on a rock. And he, again, we've got goads that are directing us and we've got nails that are establishing us. They're fixing us. They're giving us stability. You nail something on the wall and it doesn't fall off unless the wall's weak. And this is the idea. The idea is this is planted in something firm. This sticks us to it. It's words that do that. I think Jesus highlighted this clearly at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, the greatest sermon ever preached, one of the most concise and clear uh, establishments of what his kingdom life is going to look like. He says at the very end of it, summarizing it in chapter seven of Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who's built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the f- fell, sorry, not fail, And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You're nailed to Jesus by his word. That's it. You're fixed on him and you are solid. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, fell, and the floods came And the winds blew and beat against that house. You know what's interesting? It's the same storm. It's the same storm. But it's different foundations. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Words matter. I just wonder what words you're listening to. I just wonder whose words are most influencing you. I wonder what perspectives are most filling your mind. When the storms of life come, there's only one word that will enable you to stand. There's only one word that will keep you from being blown around like a, like a palm leaf in a hurricane. 
See, these, hurt, these, these words may hurt, but they, 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 they plant us firmly in one place. These wisdom's words may hurt to hear, but, but prepare us to face God's judgment. He comes to this place at the end of this chapter, and he moves from less of how they interact with us and more than how they look to the one above us. Says the end of the matter. All has been heard. The words have been said. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. Now I'm just going to say this. There's a reality. We've heard over and over and over through this book. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And that's true for every one of us. We can't do anything that's not futile in and of our own power. But everything we do is under the judgment of God. What doesn't mean or matter much to us because we are weak and pitiful and powerless to make any change matters to God. He looks and he judges everything. And the author here says, we should fear him. Now, I know, I know that's a difficult thing for us to hear. We've said that every time we've come across this. This is not the first time we've heard this in Ecclesiastes. It's been a theme, a thread that's run the whole way through this beautiful tapestry is the fear of God. But words of truth teach us to fear God. It's not just a quaking fear, although if you've never quaked in fear before a powerful, holy, sovereign God, then you've really never thought of who God is. And you've never really dealt with who you are apart from him. But this this isn't just a quaking fear, but a reverent response to knowing who he is. We've seen, and even in, uh, it's so beautiful in the time that we were studying through uh, for Advent, we've seen even Mary as she's celebrating the reality that she's carrying the Son of God in her womb. She celebrates and speaks of how, how mercy, the mercy of God is for those who fear Him. We, we saw how, how God's work was able to, to remove fear. But, but the reality is we don't, we don't quit taking Him seriously. We don't quit realizing that He's the most powerful, most sovereign The reality is that the word of God puts us in a position like Job. You remember Job? I mean, he sits, he suffered so terribly, he's endured so much, and his friends are sitting there heaping it on. You must have really sinned bad. God must really be angry with you. He's like, I don't understand what's going on, but you're wrong. I just don't get it. I wonder why. Now, that's a big summary to a lot of stuff that happens in that book. But at the very end of it, at the very end, when Job is... Has, has said the things he said and his friends have said the things that they've said, God shows up and confronts Job. Oh, Job, where were you when I created everything? When I told the water to sit here and the land to be here, where were you? Where were you when I put the snow in the clouds and the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky? Where were you when I watched over the animals as they gave birth and fed them when they were hungry? Where were you? Well, what did Job do? When God quits speaking, he says, you know what? I'm going to shut up. And when God finished speaking, Job worshipped. He saw himself in front of a holy, sovereign, all-powerful God. And he revered him. 
How about Isaiah? When Isaiah stands in the throne room, you know, he has this vision. He's in the throne room of God. And the train of his robe filled the temple. What did Isaiah do? All he could think about was his sin. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. And an angel comes over and lifts a coal out of the, the incense that's burning and comes and he touches. He says, now you're ready. Again, that's my, my version. What's Isaiah do? Here am I, send me. All he can think is, I want to go and tell others of this glorious God. You see, when we've feared God rightly, we are not just quaking before him. We are revering him and honoring him with our whole self. The amount of money in our cars or our amount of money in our bank accounts, the style of cars we're driving, the houses we're living in, they come a little bit less important. There's a paradox that happens here. And I, I didn't recognize it until it was pointed out. It was pointed out by a guy named Jeffrey Myers. He says, fearing God paradoxically is the way to live without fear. You got a lot of fear in your life? It's because you don't really know who God is. You don't really fear him first. You don't really revere him. You don't really honor him. I'm not saying there's not a measure of it. I'm not saying that, that I'm, not, I'm not trying to say you're completely away from him. But fears of everything in this world are driven by a lack of fear of the God of heaven. His word prepares you to know him and fear him. It's the whole duty of man. There's another way to look at it too. Is again, this is something that came to me this week as I was thinking about this. And the reason we don't fear God is because we don't fully love him like we've been called to love him. The Bible, Jesus says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and your neighbor as yourself. The idea is we love God first over everything else. We don't just not fear God. We don't fear losing God. We don't fear life apart from God. But that's exactly the context within which this author put it. God will judge everything good and evil. Is there any sense of fear that he'd look at you and say evil? Is there any sense of concern? I'm not trying to call into question your salvation. Please don't hear that. Please, that is not where I want to go. But apart from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is there no understanding that you are a child of wrath? You deserve nothing from him but judgment and condemnation. He owes you no good thing. We ask questions, why do so many bad things happen in the world? That's the wrong question. 
Why does anything good ever happen when God is perfect and holy and righteous and just and I am not? Why would I ever expect anything good from this God? Have I not ever feared being removed totally from his presence and from his protection and only knowing his wrath? You see, we love money so much we're afraid not to have it. We love relationships so much it shapes how we interact with one another and we won't speak truth to one another because we're so afraid to lose one another. Do we love God enough that we fear losing him? Brothers and sisters, the word of God is meant to teach us to fear him rightly, to honor him most, to long for him most, to to. to Give our lives to him most so that everything else falls under that and everything we do is done in light of that. That it might be done to his glory so that when he sees it, he says it's good. The word of God teaches us to fear him as it prepares us for his judgment. The word of God, the words of truth teach us to obey him. See, I think this is not that just it teaches us the commands like um, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. We'll pick that one. Uh, I I think we need to learn the commands, right? How do we do something we don't know we're supposed to do? So his word certainly teaches that. But can we not go back and think about what it does for us, the power that it brings out in us? It prepares us, it trains us in righteousness and equips us for every good work. The word of God does that. His truth does that. So that not only will we fear him, but we'll also obey him. It doesn't just teach us those things. It empowers us for those things. He equips us through his word to do the very things he's created us to do. Words matter. Words of truth, they matter. They come from God and they lead us to God, this one shepherd who's ensured that we have them. So beware of words that add to the futility of life under the sun because they distract from the words of truth that teach us to fear and to obey God. And to this point, I've emphasized the importance of God's written word. But as we come to the close of Ecclesiastes, I think we need to see that that God's written word has always been pointing us to his living word. The writer John wrote his gospel and he opens it this way. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and, and without Him not, one, not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. We skip to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the... Of, 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. This is Jesus. He is God's Word. We move all the way to the end of the book, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. As John is seeing this vision of what things are going to be like as he comes, as Jesus returns, he, he writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Words matter because they point us to the living word that we might know him. When we might know him, not just as a suffering savior, but a ruling king, a coming judge. He's coming. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. Where do you want to be? You want to be on the offensive line behind the white horse dressed in white? Or do you want to stand there watching him come? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You want to know who does away with vanity of vanities? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Word of God. Revelation 21, 1 through 5 He says, then I saw, John's watching this happen. Imagine what it's like to watch this happen. Then I saw, oh, I've lost my place, sorry. Get back, hit the wrong side. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and it just points this out. All this speaking, all these words, they matter. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And isn't that glorious? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. The thing that makes everything we do vanity will be destroyed. It'll be done. It'll be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. They're gone. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's not just an earth. That's you and that's me. We're made new. Not the old stuff is gone. The junk that traps us, that ensnares us, that gives us so much trouble. It's gone. Making all things new. Also he said, write this down. Because words matter. Especially these words. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Brothers and sisters, 
Beware of the words that adds the futility of life under the sun. Because they distract from the words of truth that teach us to fear and obey God. You can give your whole life. You can get caught up in the weariness of study of all kinds of things. We can even, we, we can even encapsulate this weariness under some, uh, under some headings. Entertainment. Advertisement. Education. I'm not going to suggest that these things don't have any value. I'm not down on going and getting a degree to further your education and your knowledge. I'm just suggesting that none of those will prepare you for the whole duty of man. You can give your whole life to, to influence the words that in the end just add to your weariness and your frustration or you can give yourself to knowing, believing, and obeying the written word so that when you meet the living word of God, you hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. I believe, based on what I know about the people here today, you're here because that's the word you want to hear. Put yourself in a place where you're goaded by God's word and you're nailed firmly by God's word so that you can become who God intends you and has created you to be. Let's pray.